Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If I have a student or a friend or someone in a cafe say, I'm afraid of climate change. I don't know what's going to happen. I have to be honest and say, I'm a scientist who's worked on this for decades, and I don't know what's going to happen either. Here are the things that I'm worried about. And try to pass on information with humility and with honesty and trust that the person you're talking to knows best how to use that information in their own lives. That's Hope Jaron, the author of the best-selling memoir, Lab Girl. Hope's ability to be both clear and vivid is focused now on a crisis we're all going to have to deal with one way or another. Her new book is called The Story of More, and it's the tale of how the huge increase in consumption of energy, food, and material goods by our generation has left a climate crisis for generations to come. And she shows us a path forward and what you and I and everyone else can do to hold that crisis back. I'm so glad we can be talking again. We had a wonderful conversation a year or two ago, and you really brought me closer to the plants in my life. Because one of the great hallmarks of what you do is to talk about things that could be dense, but you do it in such a personal way that you include us no matter who we are, no matter what we've studied or learned so far. You did that with Lab Girl. It was great. You gave you not only the autobiography of a lab girl, the autobiography of a plant itself in a way. I love that. I think I spend so much time with these things. And I kind of, in my mind, I, I, I have an imaginary friend that I explain <laughs> what I'm doing and how I'm feeling to. <laughs> and uh, um, I just decided, well, if I write all this down, maybe that person will exist. And lo and behold. Do you have a, a sense, of, a gauzy sense of an actual person reading it? No, really no. Um, I just felt like I would be overjoyed and thrilled to the moon and back with any kind of reader, no matter <laughs> what size, shape, <laughs> texture. <laughs> so how did you move 
from playing so dear to your heart. How did you move from that to the story of more? Yeah, I felt like, you know, when you write a book, you have to be prepared that the only thing you're going to get out of it is the fun you have writing it. Because um, if you write it, there's no guarantee it's going to get published. And if it gets published, there's no guarantee anybody's going to buy it. And if anybody buys it, there's no guarantee they're going to like it. So at the end of the day, you better be darn sure that you wrote it for your own reasons. So I did that. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, a lot of people read it. <laughs> and then I was faced with the question, what now? You know, and I thought, well, what if people do read what I write? Well, I better sit down and think what's the most important thing I have to say. You know, after doing this and being in the world and doing this particular job, what what do I really think about the biggest questions before us? You know, who we are, how we got here, what's coming, and, and where we fit in. And I thought, you know, if I've got, if I've got one more stab at this, that's what I'm going to write about. And, um, I took the years and I sat down and I said, you know, this is it. I, uh, I've been teaching this stuff, you know, to people, 50 people at a time <laughs> and it's fun and it's great, but it's not very efficient. And I thought, <laughs> I thought if I can teach this stuff, just the best of the best of the best of what I've come up with. Um, the stuff that, you know, when I'm teaching a class, I see the spark go off in people's eyes. You know, I remember those things, things I said or things I communicated that, that meant something to somebody. If I just concentrate all that into a book, what will it be? What will it look like? And then again, I'll be able to say, I did that. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't waste the fact that, that somebody started to listen to me. I, I did what I thought was the right thing. And so I'm very proud of the book. And, you know, it's now got its own life. And uh, uh, it's really, and here I am talking to you. So <laughs> follow your dreams. You'll never know what happens, right? The idea of searching for what means the most to you and, and, and also what means the most to, to the rest of us, whether we know it or not, or pay attention to it daily or not, is this leap off the cliff into more that we've taken. And again, you, you, just as with Lab Girl in this book, you take a very personal approach. The year 1969 is important for, <laughs> for, for many reasons, but also for a personal reason, because that was the year in which you were born, right? Yeah, I always say if you only learn one thing from the book, it's that I was born in 1969. <laughs> but many changes have out. taken place in all our lives since then, not yes. just yours. Yes, yes, and that's what I've found effective is to talk to people about global change and to uh, explore with them how they can see things happening in their own lives. I think because that's what brings it home to us, not the paper about stratospheric wind patterns, but the fact that the pond we used to skate on as a kid no longer freezes and the kids don't skate on it anymore. I mean, I think that hits us in a, in a very different way than the scientific studies and the headlines. Um, and so I tried to 
find as many of those things as I could, as many of those things as students had told me over the years. What are some of the monumental changes that have occurred since 1969, around a half century ago? Mm -hmm. Well, there's more of us. You know, population doubled is the thing. I think we all know that population is increasing. But yeah, since I was born... And I was, you know, I was one of those 3.5 billion people <laughs> that were produced during that time. I always think people complain about overpopulation, and I always think you you wouldn't be here to complain about it if there wasn't overpopulation. You know, this there's, there's you know, global change is is a really serious subject, but it's, it's a lot of it is kind of absurd. A lot of science is kind of absurd and funny, and I really. I really enjoy sharing that part of it with people. So population has doubled in the last 50 years. But the amazing thing is that the food supply has tripled or more. So that could have been a huge recipe for disaster. I mean, it could have been a recipe for, for you know, massive famine and a lot of hardship. And, and people predicted that too, didn't they? Absolutely. So folks saw that early on and said, you know, where is all the food going to come from? Um, and scientists got to work. <laughs> I really am proud to say that it has a lot to do with our agricultural scientists who got to work and figured out better methods of um, how to how to grow crops, how to protect them, and um, fundamentally changed the nature of the organisms themselves, the the plants and animals that we use as food. On the flip side of that coin was the tremendous. Uh, toll that this took, uh, you know, on the earth. So um, when you go from farm fields supporting, you know, a certain amount of plants to farm fields that have to support, you know, five or 10 times those number of points, that is going to impact the soil, you know, pretty, pretty extensively. So uh, what I try to communicate through the book is that, you know, there's no, it's, it's, it's not like a Marvel movie. There's no bad guy who set out to ruin the earth, that we can, you know, find his planet and blow him up, right, and get done with this. It, it's, it's something we did to ourselves, often with the very best of intentions. Uh, and that's, and that makes the problem more tricky. And it makes it more important that we involve more people in the solution. And it also makes it, it makes it really important that we acknowledge that somewhere wrapped in the problem is also the blueprint for the solution, right? I, I, I really do believe that if we have the capacity to make a problem, we have somehow the capacity to solve it as well. So in the book, I try to lay out, you know, the seeds of where, of where these things come from, the things we see today, the melting of all the ice and the, and the severity and, and the, the, the extreme nature of the, of the different weather events and, and the loss of species and, and, and trace back to the very human changes that we made in order to change our lives and in order to facilitate changes in, in the lives of people around us. I was struck by how much not only population doubled, but food production tripled, meat 
quadrupled, I think, and sugar production quintupled. Yeah. All of your research into and your your deep knowledge of the mess we've made by too much of an immersion into more. What was your personal reaction to this? I remember you talking somewhere about the night you pushed back in your chair after a long night of analyzing data. And you said, I'll walk home. Yeah. Yeah. How did that, how did that build up to such a personal reaction? Um, I think, I think when I realized that all of the want and suffering in the world is actually unnecessary, um, that, that, that all of the hurt that we see around us in terms of poverty and hunger um, and a lot of the suffering is due to our inability to share and not due to the earth's inability to provide. So even with <laughs> this huge population, 7 billion people, we could, if we were capable of sharing and distributing it equally and moving it around, we could each consume somewhere around 2,400 calories a day, which is well above the threshold that, for example, the World, World Health Organization deems um, capable of supporting good quality of life. We could all use energy at about the level of uh, your average citizen in Switzerland in 1960s. Right, which wasn't exactly, you know, it's it's an austere compared to today, but it's not exactly um, a level of suffering. So, so the resources actually exist, but but you know, all the all the inequality we see today, and granted, it's a complicated result of uh, you know of history and bias and and war and and power structures, etc. But in in term, you know, in mathematical terms, in scientific terms, mass balance terms, if you could somehow split it up well or better, we we could pull this off. Okay, so 20% of the grain we grow that we could feed to people is eaten by nobody. Not by animals, not by people, not by anyone. We ferment it back into fuel. So we run tractors in order to plant seeds and harvest grain. And then we take that grain and we ferment it back into fuel, which we could put into tractors in order to grow more grain, harvest it, turn into food. I mean, I always call it the Mobius strip of environmental science um, because there are these just weird things that we do. Um, the same thing goes with, you know, fossil fuels. You know, you often find natural gas in the same reservoir where you find petroleum. And there's an awful lot of facilities around the world where they simply burn that natural gas off and don't collect it. They simply collect the petroleum, right? So there's, so we could think about that as a type of waste if we wanted to be more particular about those budgets. Um, but the idea of, of using fuel to make food and turning that food back into fuel is is you know crazy if you look at it in in some ways and yet that's something that's touted as being a real you know green solution and um sustainable 
to the extent that you can sustain torching a big pile of food every year <laughs> just for the sake of, of a domestic source of fuel to put in your car. So the night you were thinking about this and you pushed back your chair yeah. and said, I'm going to walk home from the lab instead of taking a kind of transportation that would burn fossil fuel, you were making a personal decision to take a personal action. How can we get to less by taking personal actions? What's the contrast between that and getting there by changing policy? Right. Um, and that's something I hear a lot uh, about the book is that it, it focuses a lot on personal actions. And I consciously did that. Uh, I think I think that's the book I needed to write. And I think it's the book people need to read. I don't think folks have wrapped their mind around the fact that these policy changes that folks are calling for would require or would mandate that people use less energy in their everyday lives. So what I wanted to do was create a story where people could see where is it in my life that I use the most energy. If, if somebody proposes a policy change that has a lot to do with the lights in my house, it, you know, you want to be skeptical of that because turning on and off the lights in your house is a very, very small part of your energy budget. And presumably we're talking about policies that would be decided upon, you know, in the democratic forum, right? <laughs> so we need to be educated about what are the activities in our lives that use the most energy. I wanted to get people to think on a tangible level about what is energy and what do we use it for? We use it to get around, we use it to eat, and we use it to maintain our health. And I go through uh, each of those systems uh, in on a personal level with global examples <laughs> through the book. And, and I, what I've seen in the classroom is that it really gives folks the tools to to think about it. And it also gives folks the information and the agency that they need to combat their fears. Yeah, I think that's one of the things the book does really well, is that it gives individual people a vivid way to look at how using less instead of more can be done, how it has an impact in each of each of us in a small way on the whole p problem so that we can evaluate policies that are suggested that would affect us all. But the idea that we can each, in a way, each place a vote, it's one of the, one of the problems that we have is that we don't have enough encouragement of the kind you're giving us to realize that our individual voice can add up to volumes if we do it together. The, the idea that so few people vote compared to how many could vote if they realized their lives depended on it, uh, that it's, it's, it's shocking to me. And in a way, this is like voting. It's one, one time you turn the light switch off. The more you can make it personal, I think the more it matters. I noticed I started turning off more lights in the house 
when we had just experienced a cave-in and coal miners died. Mm-hmm. And I thought, they're risking their lives so I can keep my light on in the living room when I'm not even in the living room. That, be, that was vivid to me. And your book helps me turn the lights off in more rooms. When we come back from our break, I talk with Hope Jaron about how our experience of living through the pain and restrictions of the COVID pandemic may actually help us all rethink some of our deeply ingrained habits. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Hope Jaron. We'd been talking about the expectation we're used to having that there would always be more of everything, and how that expectation needs to change if the planet is to be rescued. This brings up the very difficult question of changing habits, deeply ingrained habits. Do you think we've had an experience lately of uh, changing our habits about more? with regard to what we've, we've been doing, being sequestered with COVID. Do you think that has given us an experience that could help us change the more habit? Will it last if it has? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's nothing good about COVID. It's not, there's there's no, you know, it's a, it's a terrible thing that caused a lot of suffering and death. But it has the potential to teach us some things. And it taught us that we could do a couple things that we never imagined ourselves doing. And, you know, some of it was as simple as staying home, not commuting to work and back. And that sounds like a simple thing, but it has shaken up the workforce and the workplace in a way that decades of economic growth, you know, never touched. Because now we've got workers that are really questioning the place where they do their labor does it does it have to be there you know do we need these buildings that only exist to 
house us while we labor, you know, because we do have to heat those buildings and we do have to air condition them and we have to build them and all these kinds of things. So, so that is actually a interrogation of energy use. I mean, I don't think we see it on the surface, but this idea of when we work and how we work uh, is, is very powerful in terms of uh, its potential effect on, on the green movement. Um, also, you know, I think people are starting to interrogate the idea of more. It's extremely exciting to me that young people um, are asking these questions. Uh, you know, they're doing it under sort of dire circumstances, but folks are finally beginning to question, you know, what if I do work more and it doesn't yield the things that I'm supposed to want? And why am I supposed to want those things? And if they're just not available, then then what do I do with my life, right? I mean, there's, there's you know, the great resignation, right? And people are starting to ask very hard questions about why do we labor? Why do we acquire things? Um, what is the cost of following the path we've always followed? And um, it's been amazing to me to watch. I mean, it, we're interrogating those things at a deep level and at the university as well. You know, do we need to come together in the classroom physically? And if we don't, where does the expertise exist and how do we transfer it to each other? Um, those kinds of questions sound simple, but they really have the potential to shake the foundations of how we live our lives. And what I try to argue is how we live our lives, the choices we make from moment to moment, translate into the energy we use. And the energy we use translates into the effect we see on the earth and how habitable it is and will be. You mentioned young people and you've just come out with another version of this same book, The Story of More specifically designed for younger adults. What age range approximately are you thinking of? Um, you know, they market it at 12 and up, but I like to think that uh, I can write a book that anybody can enjoy. <laughs> so it has to do with the, the language is simplified. Um, the, the focus is a lot more on the future. And it, the last 20 years... You know, I, I, it's a hard sell to get, um, you know, teenagers interested in what happened 50 years ago. <laughs> I think 20, 20 years is a more, uh, is a more interesting chunk of time. <laughs> and, you know, just since the year 2000, there's been amazing changes, you know, in the, in the, particularly the, um, the geopolitical partitioning of energy use. Um, so is is it more personal to to that age group? I think so. I think this is an age group that is already very steeped in the idea that this is an issue. I think raising awareness about about climate change and global change is not is not is no longer the task. I think arming and fortifying this generation with the tools to make the solutions that I can't dream of, the solutions that will come from the new fields that they are creating and whatever they build upon what I was able to do. 
Um, I think it's all about fortifying them to take this on. And, you know, if there is a lot of fear about, about climate change and global change. And it's, it's really holding us back from, from ourselves and from each other, and also from making progress on deciding, purposefully deciding the world we want to have and moving towards it. And our young people deserve much better than diffuse fear over such an important subject. I get the impression that fear, dealing with the problem of fear and hopelessness with regard to what most of us have heard about climate change, has that you feel it's led to inaction and kind of... Uh, a dead stop. What 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 can my one little voice do? A pebble in a huge pond, a cup of water into the ocean. So your help, your, the aid you're coming with, seems to be the idea that there actually is personal action that's meaningful in in various ways because it tends. To spread or what? How? What, what's the connection between the personal action and the broader action that is going to be necessary for these more things to get less? Right. I think there has to be a large-scale reckoning with the concept of consumption. What do we use in order to make our lives work? If we didn't use it, what parts of our lives would still work? I mean, I think that's at the root of it. I think that's something that's going to affect us personally on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's huge. You know, one book is not going to give us the answers to these things. But we have to start. You know, I, I really feel like my duty as an educator is to give people the tools that will be useful to them. Um, I don't know what the answer is to healing the earth and getting it back on the road to being a place that will be able to shelter and feed at a minimum, you know, the population that's coming. So I hear a lot of talk about fear and I get asked a lot about fear. Should I be afraid of this? How afraid should I be? Um, is the world going to end? Uh, is, is it really as terrible as I hear? Uh, I even have colleagues that say the whole problem is people aren't afraid enough as if, as if we could put out messages that are purposefully designed to, to elicit fear in people. And I think, you know, people don't make good decisions when they're afraid. <laughs> Number one. Uh, number two, I think when we're afraid, it, it paralyzes us into doing nothing. And that's absolutely the opposite of what we want here. I also think that knowledge is the only thing that really drives out fear. So if I have a student or a friend or someone in a cafe say, I'm afraid of climate change, I don't know what's going to happen. 
I have to be honest and say, I'm a scientist who's worked on this for decades, and I don't know what's going to happen either. Here are the things that I'm worried about. And try to pass on information with humility and with honesty and trust that the person you're talking to knows best how to use that information in their own lives. I'm a teacher. I never wanted to produce propaganda. <laughs> I wanted to teach people things. And these young people are going to attack, be attacking this long after I'm dead. And my job is not to scare them. My job is to give them as many tools and as much encouragement as I can possibly put together. I think you've given us all those tools. And one of the things we don't have more of is time for our conversation. But before we go, we always do, as you may remember, we always do seven quick questions. And you've already done your seven quick questions, but it might be interesting to see if any of them have changed since then. First one is, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood why people love cars so much. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> And I get it. You know, I, I, there's people that just love cars. They want to have a new car and they just love it. And I've never, and it, it, honestly, it's not for environmental reasons. It's just that I just have seen cars just ruin the lives <laughs> and mangle the trust. And, you know, I mean, a car that doesn't work is such a huge piece of junk. You know, it's just, it's just a misery in your life. I've always had unreliable cars and I, I just, it, I just have been made miserable by so many cars and seen so many people made misery. I just really cannot imagine that a world without cars wouldn't be a happier place. Well, of all <laughs> the people I've asked that question to, you, that is the, a unique answer. That's <laughs> great. What, next question is, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? They probably believe it for a reason. And it might make sense. It, it's probably the result of what they've seen and experienced, right? So I think you have to get at how they might be thinking. I think you have to respect the fact that they believe it for some kind of reason and that you'll never, you, and that you can't truly believe that your belief has merit unless you can imagine a world where theirs does too. I guess it's because I've spent so much time trying to think like a tree, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that by comparison, thinking like somebody with other values or whatever is, is reasonably easy, you know? <laughs> That's a good, a good key to your thinking about that. Yes. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, when did you find time to write the book? Why is that strange? It's like asking somebody when, you know, I have data that says you ate 250 ice cream cones last year. When did you find time to eat them? <laughs> like, you like it so much. Whenever I could. Yeah, right. right? I mean, it's ice cream, <laughs> duh. So that's, that's... How do you stop a compulsive talker? I look at the clock and ask myself if I've really been talking that long. 
that sometimes work. That sometimes works, but not always. So let's say you're at a dinner table, kind of a dinner party. You're sitting next to someone you don't know, you've never met before. How do you start up a real, authentic conversation? Gosh, that is such a hard question. Just be glad you got invited. and Enjoy your meal. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> what, what gives you confidence? That I've seen the things I do get better over the years. I mean, I can look back on some of the papers I wrote when I was getting started or the, all the grant proposals that I wrote, and they're really cringy. And <laughs> no wonder it got turned down. I would never give anyone $5 for that stupid idea. And But instead of beating myself up over it, I think, gosh, that girl turned into something. Like, the Compare that to what I can write now. That's so, such a positive way to look at it. That's great. It's, the growth that people are are capable of is just it's the most wonderful thing. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. It's got this lead character. Her name is Becky Sharp, and she just... It's a vac Victorian novel, right? But she just purposefully goes around breaking every rule she can possibly find, just w completely without apology. And there's something about a woman breaking the rules that is just such a joyful thing. <laughs> well, whatever rules you've broken, it's brought you to a good place. And I'm so glad one of the places it's brought you to is here for this conversation. It's been really fun, Hope. I'm glad to see you again. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And great good luck with the books. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Hope Jaron is a professor at the University of Oslo's Center for Earth Evolution and Dynamics, where the Jaron Lab studies the chemistry of living and fossil organisms. Her 2006 memoir, Lab Girl, became a bestseller and led to Time magazines naming her one of the year's 100 most influential people. Her new book is The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where We Go From Here. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Saul Perlmutter. He won both the Kavli Prize and the Nobel Prize for discovering that the universe is doing the exact opposite of what he and his colleagues had long assumed. Instead of the expansion of the universe slowing down, it is in fact speeding up and at an ever-increasing rate. The first time I gave a real scientific presentation, it was to a uh, group at Santa Cruz, um, and after I finished the talk, um, one of the famous 
cosmologists in the audience um, stood up and he turned around to the audience and he said, you know, I just want to point out that this is really a big deal. This is a completely different picture. And that was the moment where I stopped and I said, yeah, actually, it's a big deal, you know, and and it, and it, it, it's it's sort of somebody else had to help you, you you remind yourself that this is really you know amazing. Saul Perlmutter, the man who upended the universe. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.